Good morning. So reading from Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God won't give us more than we can handle. That's wrong. It's not just wrong, it's a cunning lie from the enemy. He has twisted God's word again, as he always does. God's word actually says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which I believe the enemy has twisted, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. James chapter 1 says, when anyone's tempted, he should not say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. With the temptation that comes through the enemy, God provides the way of escape. The way is Jesus, the one who has endured all, was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. He is the way of escape. Somehow, the enemy over time has twisted this word that many have come to believe the lie that God will not give us more than we can handle. Four times This week, it might seem odd that I'm beginning with this after that reading, and I believe there's a link, so hang in there. But four times this week, I heard this lie quoted as God's word, once on a primetime television drama, which I won't admit to watching. (laughs) Not that surprising. One time on a Facebook post, which I'm not on, but my wife showed me, Not that surprising. Once in a conversation at Gold's Gym. Again, not that surprising. Once on Christian radio. Sadly, not that surprising. But consider this for a moment. If God won't give us more than we can handle, then we don't need Him. Then we don't need to pray. Then we 
don't need one another's help. In fact, we don't need any help. We just need to look within, give ourselves a pep talk, and redouble our efforts into self-sufficiency. Why it's such a cunning lie from the enemy is that, and remember, this enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy is when life happens and we find ourselves hurting, struggling, suffering, over our head, drowning. If God isn't giving us more than we can handle, then we either give ourselves that pep talk and see if that works again, or we succumb to despair. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And we get crushed. Just the intention of the enemy. The truth of the gospel is we need a Savior because we cannot handle life and temptation. The Holy Spirit is here because we need a helper. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul preached, it's God who gives to all men life and breath and everything. In fact, the entire scriptures from beginning to end are a resounding testimony of man being unable to handle life and temptation and God's love and pursuit, rescue and deliverance. Wouldn't wouldn't the opposite of the statement be more true? Again and again, scripture shows us it's clearly God's will to give us more than we can handle in order that we would call out to him, that we would cry out to him, help, Lord. It's too much. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense and my righteousness. God, how I need you. We'll sing that prayer in a few minutes. But it's essentially what the early church in Acts 4 is praying together, as we heard read. They're using different words, but the same heart. Oh, sovereign God, we know you have all power and all authority, and we need you now. Without your help, we will not persevere, we will not prevail. In the midst and the face of threats and persecution, Peter and John earlier in the story have been thrown in jail for a night, so falsely arrested, simply because they brought healing through the power of Jesus to a lame man. They are brought before the council to explain themselves, to give a defense, which they do excellently in the power of the Spirit. Yet, even though the rulers could not deny what had taken place, the man was standing right before them. They dismissed it and they threatened them to stop speaking of Jesus. Or worse would come to them. That's what has just taken place. Now they are coming back to the church, telling them of what happened and asking for prayer and encouraging all together. This this is what Jesus said would happen. They killed him. They persecuted him. He said, anyone who follows me will, will find that also true. And so they collectively are calling out to him for help. They're, they've just been given more than they can handle. And they're calling out, Lord, help us. And by the way, this is just the beginning 
All right, it's not going to get any easier. In the next chapter, they get arrested again. Another night in jail. They're delivered. They're freed. Spoiler alert. This time, as they come before the council, again giving a defense, they are threatened. They are beaten. And the only thing that kept the rulers from doing worse to them was the crowds who were in an uproar about it because they were witnessing what was taking place. This is just the beginning of the story of the early church and the persecution that they would face. Later, Peter, as all records tend to point, was crucified because he would not recant preaching of Jesus. John was tortured, thrown into boiling oil to kill him. It did not, so they banished him to the island of Patmos. And this is only the beginning of the persecution. And they're calling out, Lord, help. If we were to say to Peter and John, chin up, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. That's no good. When nails are being driven through your hands and your feet, that's no good. Since none of us have experienced that, to make it more relatable, when a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend dies, when chronic pain or illness persists, when financial debt seems insurmountable, when addiction seems all-consuming, when depression or despair seems suffocating, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. It's like that final straw that breaks the back. Exactly what the enemy would intend. Instead, God's Word actually says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will bring good out of all things for those who love me. Even the evil that men would attend, I will bring good from. And furthermore, this world is not your home. You are citizens of heaven. You are already seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. You will be raised imperishable one day. This light momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds it all. And Jesus, in some of his final words, go and I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the truth. This is the gospel. Not the twisted lie that you can do it on your own if you just work hard enough. We need a Savior. We have a Helper. We are not left alone. And nothing we are experiencing is beyond what has been endured and walked through in the power and presence of the Spirit of God by our brothers and sisters ahead of us and by even those in our daily midst. Satan would like to turn us inward and be crushed, but God calls us to turn upward and be empowered. And this is what the early church is modeling for us in the face of 
greater persecution, greater threat. Their lives were on the line daily. That's how they woke up each day. If I'm faithful today, Lord, this may be my last day. It was a reality. That's different than any one of us has likely faced. And in the face of that, in that reality, who are they? Not just what do they do. That's been a recurring phrase we've been using. But who are they? Because of Christ in them, what do we see? Who are they? They are people of prayer. And we would rightly ask, without this persecution, would they even be praying like this? Without the daunting, more than they can handle mission of preaching the gospel to the whole world, would they even be praying like this? Prayer certainly wasn't a program, it was a priority. It was no activity, it was a necessity. I'm essentially adding the missing point from last week's sermon. We looked at Peter and John and this buzz that had happened in the early church and how they were, they were prepared with the gospel. They had been equipped, they'd been prepared, they'd been with Jesus. Now the Spirit is with them, they are prepared, they are also in position. It's so critical. They're willing to be in position. And while they were on their way to the temple to speak to fellow Jews about who Jesus truly was, at risk, but while they were on the way, they saw this paralyzed man. That's not why they were going to the temple that day, but they saw him, maybe they'd passed him every day for years, And they saw him that day and they stopped and they engaged him and somehow they believed and saw that the Spirit was there to heal him that day. And so they offered that to him and he's healed and restored. They're prepared with the gospel. They're putting themselves in position to be used and God ends up using them in a way that they weren't even expecting. And they find themselves again having the opportunity to preach before brothers, sisters, and the leaders of the temple. This is the third point. As God provides opportunity, as we are prepared and we are putting ourselves in position, are we also praying? And that's not a one, two, three, it's a all together. Are we praying? And these people prayed and they prayed and they prayed. They were devoted to prayer. And we see it again here in a time of desperation. The title of this sermon is one of our core convictions as a church. All things by prayer. That comes from a lot of places, but specifically Philippians 4, 5. The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Ephesians six eighteen, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Paul and Thessalonians would say, pray continually, pray without ceasing. It's a it's, a, it's life and breathing for the disciples of Christ. One of the great prayer warriors of the early 1900s, late 1800s, 1900s, the holiness movement, R.A. Torrey said, pray for great things, expect great things, work for great things, but above all, pray. Toward the end of A.B. Simpson's life, the, the founder of the Alliance movement, he, he was on record, I'm paraphrasing, saying, I believe that the legion of prayer, the movement of prayer, will be the most powerful, the greatest, the longest lasting impact that we as a people could ever have. After all that he had started and launched 
missionaries sent, people coming to know Christ to the ends of the earth, fulfilling that Acts 1.8 commission. Without prayer, we have no hope. And look how they prayed. And this may be one of the most, truly, one of the most important model prayers we have in Scripture because it is a group of people, it's a church, praying all together. So take note. Four relatively brief notes. One, how are they praying? Who are they? How are they praying? One, they're all together of one accord. Don't ever believe that prayer is simply an individual activity. We have evidence that's clear that they are all together of one accord, praying, agreeing together for what God would do, what they need from Him. Certainly prayer is individual. Jesus says, go into your room, close the door, and pray. That's out of discipline and devotion and to remove distractions. It's not to be a formula that that's the only time you pray. There's no way that holds up with the rest of Scripture. And when we're told to pray continually, that can't mean we never come out of that room. And clearly we have the model of the church coming together to pray. They are all together of one accord, which means they're unified. There's no division amongst them. They're all in agreement of who Jesus is and what they need from him to fulfill the mission he's called them to. Not that they don't have conflicts and divisions and issues to still work out. We'll see it in the very next chapter. But what galvanizes them together is the mission of Christ that lost people are living and dying apart from Jesus and they have the hope of the gospel of life to the full in Jesus. And it's driving everything that they're about. It's their whole life. And now they're facing opposition and threats and persecution and it would be easier just to go back home and go back to the fishing boat. And they're calling out to God for help. That unity around the mission is what keeps them from quarreling about trivial things. When our mindset is on the eternal, the temporal starts to fade. They're not debating music style, carpet colors. Heck, they're not even debating... Arminianism versus Calvinism, I guess would be difficult because it was 1,500 years before those two men existed. By the way, notice how they hold in faithful tension the sovereignty of God, that's their declaration, and the responsibility that they're under to evangelize the lost, that if people would not hear, how could they ever come to Christ? There's a powerful tension that they hold. I don't even think they talked about it. It just was truth for them. St. Augustine said, and it could have easily been St. Paul, but we don't have this as record. St. Augustine said, pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on you. I think he's trying to capture that tension. What will it take for the church today to be of one accord? To be unified. Persecution. A wartime mentality. And when persecution comes, when hardship comes, and when war comes, priorities start to be rearranged. 
Now, I'm not advocating seeking or praying for either. And maybe it's not political war that is needed for the church. Maybe it's actually spiritual. If we were to actually advance onto the enemy's territory, perhaps we would begin praying like the early church. Warren Wearsby, pastor, commentator, author, a little more recent than these other guys I've been quoting, he said, if more of God's people were witnessing for Christ in daily life, there would be more urgency and blessing when the church meets for prayer. We have a conviction, all things by prayer. We have a belief in the promise of Jesus when he said, my house will be called a house of prayer. We are the new temple. He was in the temple when he said those words. The temple has passed away. We, the church, the body is the new temple. So wherever we gather, as we engage in prayer, we become his house of prayer. And it doesn't mean that there's not work and effort to be done. So Fridays with Pastor John and many others who gather in the Trilogy area to pray. Sunday mornings, every Sunday in the upper room, we gather to pray. Certainly as we gather in this context, we are seeking the Lord in prayer. Tuesdays, men, as we gather, I intend for God's lead, but the big portion of that to be in prayer for one another and for worship. The ladies have felt led to center the retreat this year on prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer. Could we be unified? Number two, they were all together. They were unified. They came together to pray. It was their sole agenda. Number two, they worshiped through prayer. They begin with praise to God. In the midst of hardship, of trial, of difficulty, when it's so easy to come together saying, we need to pray, and to spend the majority of time just talking about the problems. The first thing they do is lift up praise. O sovereign God. It says they lifted their voices. They were singing together. I don't know what the tune was, but they're a singing people. O sovereign God, verse 24, who's made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. When we sing, and in our culture today, that's odd. It's one of the only places that we gather together and sing in a group. You do so at a, con- a concert, it's probably so loud, no one can hear you. Just, by the way, the reason I like the volume up, I can sing out loud and no one can hear me, make a joyful noise. But it is different in our culture, but it's, it's been constant throughout the history of God's people. They're a singing people. We are, we are joining in to an ancient practice that goes beyond 2,000 years to the early church. The longest book in the Bible is Psalms. Those were all intended to be sung. But it goes even further back. In the garden at the very beginning, our first father, Adam, was a singer. He sang as God created Eve. He sang in worship, in praise. We are a singing people. The early church is a singing people. And even in the midst of pain and hardship and difficulty, they are singing. So we sing. 
And there's so many times where it doesn't, you don't feel like singing. Sing. There's power in the spoken word and there's power in the sung praises of God. They were all together. They were of one accord. They worshipped in prayer. I guess that was were two points. Three, they prayed through the word. Pastor John calls this expositional prayer. Bible's open. Declaring the promises of God. Joining in with the eternal voice of God. The promises that have always been. Now in their midst of how exciting that must have been. They are being fulfilled now, today. The things that have been spoken of are today in our midst. They pray through Psalm 2. That's the passage that they turn to as they join in with the Spirit who is present with them and in them and are reminded that the same Spirit was with David and all of their forefathers in the faith. By David, he spoke. And they quote Psalm 2, 1 and 2. And they point to fulfillment to their very midst. This is verses 25 through 27. The fulfillment of David's words carried by the same Spirit are happening now. This is an extension or an example of their declaration, God, you are sovereign. You have all creative power. There is nothing in the heavens and the earth that you have not made and set into motion. This is now an extension. They are saying, God, you are in control of all history. You've been writing one story from beginning to end, and we are just beginning to see the fullness of it. It's all about Jesus. And so they pray through Psalm 2, just as Peter had earlier in his sermons preached through Joel 2 and Psalm 118. Words that the Jewish people had cherished for centuries. But Peter is saying, cannot be understood without seeing Jesus, who is the fulfillment. God's story will triumph. His word inspires their prayers. So they're all together. They're in one accord. They begin in worship to the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God. Bible's open, looking to the word as much as Bibles could be open. We may have had one copy of a scroll. But hearts tuned to God's word. Now finally, number four, what do they ask for? What do they ask for? Notice the order here. There's different acrostics. In fact, one of the most popular prayer acrostics is Acts. That seems appropriate. A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and a word we don't often use, supplication. Paul used it. At least, well, we translated it into English. Acts, because there's an order in some ways to prepare our hearts. We are told again and again, pray all kinds of prayers. Man, no holds barred. The Holy Spirit is in and through our prayers. He's helping us in our weakness. Whatever's not of God's will, may it fade, Lord. But prepare our hearts, and they do that, in adoration, 
in turning to the word to be reminded of his promises and his goodness. They put their trust into him. Now they are coming to request. Lord, help. That's why they started. But they prepared themselves to pour out their hearts. I know if you're anything like me, if you start with supplication, and sometimes that's all you got. Nehemiah had one of those prayers. In that moment before the king, that kind of, Lord, help me. We're told that's essentially exactly and all the time he had. Lord, help. We have those moments. But if we just begin in supplication, I wonder how much of that needs to just be stripped and faded. If we prepared our hearts, I know I've gone to the Lord with specific requests, rightly come back to either the Lord's Prayer or or the acrostic acts and worked my way through and I get to the end and I say, Lord, your will be done. What I had just been coming to you for, you already know about. He already knew before I brought it to him. He calls us to bring all things to him in a relationship. But sometimes those things just fade when we are reminded of who he is, of his bigness, his goodness, his love. He's got it. And then sometimes we do pour out that heart in supplication, which is right and is good. And this is what the early church does. But look what they ask for. Verse 29, as they declare, Lord, look upon the threats. You see us. Lord, you see us. You see the threats we're under. You see the persecution. You see the heart. You see what we're against. You knew it, but you see it. Look upon it. And now grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand. Because what they're saying is you will continue to heal. You're going to continue to be at work. But God, give us boldness to continue the mission, to continue to proclaim in the face of opposition and persecution. Notice what they didn't pray for. They didn't pray for rescue and escape, but for perseverance and power. They didn't pray for God's hand to be upon the enemies and wipe them out. They prayed for God's hand to be upon them to embolden them. Now hear me, it is not wrong to pray for rescue, deliverance, help Lord, get me out. I'm over my head, I cannot handle it. But I find it striking that the early church's first prayer isn't for escape, for rescue. It's God, you've sent us here. This is more than we can handle. We've barely even begun the mission of preaching the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're still at the temple in Jerusalem. And this thing's about to end. This is more than we we can handle. But Lord, you've sent us. You've put us here. Your will be done, Lord. Give us the strength to endure. The boldness to continue to speak. They're in such a place of humility. It's the only way to pray for boldness. Out of a humility that says, I cannot do it apart from you, Lord. I've got nothing. Give me boldness. From your humility, add boldness. 
Notice too their anticipation and expectation of God's hand. I hinted at that. Grant us the boldness to continue while you continue your work. It was so normal for them to see God's hand at work in powerful ways. They knew that was going to continue. They were concerned they couldn't do their part. God, you're still at work. You will be working. Help us remain faithful. Help us join you in what you are doing. I wrote in the margins, do we, I should say, do I, do I first pray for escape or for endurance? For protection or for perseverance and power? For easier life or for greater strength. What they were truly gripped by and moved by was an expectation and anticipation of God's work in, around, and through them. They were not consumed by tribulation. And what was the result? The result of a people praying in one accord, worshiping God's sovereignty, trusting in God's promises, asking for boldness to preach the gospel and persevere through opposition. What is the result? Power. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers in the fifth century he said they were all shaken by god and therefore became all the more unshakable the power of god's presence as i said earlier notice they didn't ask god to shake the walls they weren't asking god to show a sign that he was still with them they were asking god to stir their hearts They were asking God to work within them at a soul level to endure. And God, in His grace, gave confirmation of His promise. His promise is held. I am with you, lest you forget. I am with you. And He may do that in any way He wants to do. Confirmation of His promises. I am with you. And a recommissioning, a confirmation of the commission. As you go, I am with you to the end of the age. Again and again in Acts. In fact, the majority of times where the word says they were filled or the Spirit came upon them, it is directly linked with the proclamation of the gospel. They'd already been filled with the Spirit. What is this? What is this but an ongoing, continual filling that Paul would later teach on? Be being filled with the Spirit. Be in position, trusting that the Spirit is with you and is going to continue to be the only one to empower the work that He's called you to. Trust Him for that. They are being renewed, restored, reminded, refreshed, in his promises and in his presence to go and preach the gospel. A.W. Tozer, great alliance pastor, we probably turn to him as a theologian more than 
any other in our family, in our movement. He said the early church was not merely an organization or a movement, but a walking incarnation of spiritual energy. The church began in power, advanced in power, and moved just as long as she had power. And did she keep walking in power? Does she today? Tozer goes on to say he pastored in the 50s, 40s, 50s, some in the 60s, 19, by the way, 19. When the church no longer had power, she dug in for safety and sought to conserve her gains. But her blessings were like the manna from heaven. When the church tried to keep it overnight, it bred worms and stank. In church history, every return to New Testament power has marked a new advance somewhere. And every diminution, reduction, of power has seen the rise of some new mechanism for conservation and defense. Not what we are called to. We are not called to preservation, comfort, or security. We are not called to set up defenses. We have a defender. My one defense, my righteousness. That means that maybe in the place of greatest trial or pain or fear, uncertainty, when the natural longings of your heart is, Lord, get me out, that may mean that you are in the center of God's will. Which means that you're in the center of His hand. Some of the greatest missionaries I know taught me that. And I can't remember if it was Bob or Bobby first that said that. Tozer goes on to say, what would this look like? It is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. See, we can say, Lord, help us return to pray like they prayed. Help us, when we have too much to handle, to come together in unity and pray, to worship you, to trust you, to ask for boldness. We can say all of that. But if we attempt again to do that in our strength, we're back to square one. And Tozer creates the path. The church that is willing to die to worldly standards That's the church that will know the power of Christ's resurrection and the power of the presence of His Spirit. And this Tozer is a prophet for a reason because when you read the words of a prophet and 75 years have passed and it sounds like he's speaking to today, there's an inspiration that is there that is timeless. And you read a man who was before the computer age write about culture and it strikes right to the core of the same issues. Just like God's Word always has. That's not saying Tozer was inspired in that way. No. But the same Spirit is still at work with the same truths that have always been proclaimed. 
We must no longer be gripped by the American dream, but by the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Neither moth nor rust will destroy there. There will be no thieves to break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Later, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. With all due respect, Mr. Trump, the American dream is not just flawed, it is too small. Trump just happens to be a placeholder. And in the next passage, we'll see the disciples putting this into practice. Selling homes, fields, property, giving all to the apostles to distribute to the poor because they were broken of any hold that worldly and temporal things had. Well, that's next week. But perhaps another lie that we've come to believe is that God has stopped Rattling walls and doing of the sort today. But is it possible that we've stopped asking him to rattle our hearts? That we are truly unwilling to let go and lay down our earthly treasures in order to gain the treasures that Jesus speaks of. John Wesley said, Give me 100 of God's people who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they are clergymen. We don't use that term all that often, but whether they are the paid vocational pastors of the church or whether they are Anyone else? I used to think it was lame men. You were, man, that's just harsh, but I guess we're supposed to be humble under the Lord. I am a layman. Lame men. I got it. I don't care whether, who they are. Give me a hundred people who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Well, there's a hundred of us about what would God want to do through us? We've been asking that question for months now. The outcome is His. The work is His. But God, give us the boldness to engage and not shrink back. To find the fullness of life that could only be found in fulfilling the call of our King of our Savior, and of our Lord. It could begin this morning. I'm not asking for walls to be shaken. I'm asking, Lord, shake my heart. Stir it again. Show me even the things I'm ignorant to that have my hands gripped too tightly on. And there's pain when things are ripped out of your hands. So Lord, show me how 
open my hands to receive, both give and receive dual posture. Catherine, team, why don't you come and prepare to lead us, give us space to respond, to join in the ancient practice of the church, to sing praises, to sing testimony of who God is, of what He's done, and to be asking all through it in prayer, all together. There's maybe nothing like a song that unifies a people, because all together we are proclaiming, we agree, Lord. We agree in the promise. We must fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, Lord. May it be so. We must seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. That our greatest treasures and pursuits would not be temporal, but eternal. And when trials, when persecution, or simply when pain, loss, suffering comes, the more than we can handle stuff of this life, may we be people who first seek His kingdom. And first pray for strength, perseverance, boldness, and power in the midst. And my prayer is that the catalyst for us as a people becomes anticipation, not tribulation. But whatever it takes, Lord, to put us on our knees crying out for help, crying out for more of You, crying out that Your promises would be true, May it be. If you're regular with our family, you know that we create this space to respond both in song, in giving, and in coming to the table to be all-inclusive or examples of what we've received, what we again receive, and what we get to give and engage into. And so if you're a guest with us, we invite you to the table if you're a follower of Christ. We invite you to pass the bag and not give. We invite you to sing and join us even if it's just for this day. And if you could use prayer for anything specific, I would love to pray with you. And we have a few from our prayer team. If you were, were to come in the front, we would just pray with you. Or you can come find one of us as we close after a few songs. Let's join me with one prayer and then let's sing it. Go ahead, Catherine. You can begin. Lord, we need you. Oh, Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Our one defense, our righteousness. Oh, God, how we need you. Shake our hearts, Lord. Give us more. As we sang earlier, break our hearts for what breaks yours. And now fill that brokenness with your power and with more of your spirit to be faithful to the work and the call that you alone have given. Help us, Lord.